This is the Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol. This week on the show, we present a conversation pre-recorded on July 6, 2019 with Richard Webb. Richard Webb has been driving the development of cutting-edge solutions in global Fortune 500 environments in the high-tech industry for over 20 years. He brings big-picture vision to both operational and digital transformation by applying lean concepts to optimize systems, streamline processes, and reduce costs while managing multi-million dollar budgets and corporate change. Additionally, he cultivates collaboration to bridge development, operations, and implementation while building highly productive teams that increase enterprise resiliency and security. As a young man, Richard entered into an intensive apprenticeship with noted Sufi teacher Rashad Field and ultimately worked with Field and his community for almost 20 years. Having established himself in the world both professionally and with a family, he found himself at a crossroads in the early 2000s that led to his initiation into a shamanic tradition. His work was soon complemented with the initiation into the Tibetan Cho tradition, which weaved a web of community support into the sometimes wild and elemental work of his shamanic tradition. Throughout these epical shifts in his spiritual work, Richard maintains a clarity about the nature of practice and the essence of spiritual transformation. He brings an earthy and immediate wisdom to our conversation that is both deadly serious, yet leavened with humor and compassion. Richard Webb, welcome to the Mystical Positivist. Thank you. Welcome. Well, we're glad to have you, and and uh, we'll start off with our our usual first question for the first conversation that we have with a guest, which is to invite you to uh, reflect back on childhood and youth, and um, if there are any experiences that you can point to that, um, in retrospect, seem like harbingers of the direction that. <laughs> spiritual practice developed into in your adult life if anything comes up tell us well, there's a lot there well um it's an interesting um my childhood was very rough i was very sickly and so there was a lot of uh, issues around my childhood just with uh, general health hmm. um i was very premature so i didn't come out complete so i struggled for many many years to uh, be here, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And uh, the joke I make is, if you ever watched the movie The Sixth Sense, mm -hmm. uh, that's a documentary of my childhood. Um, <laughs> it is the closest thing ever made of my childhood um, in almost all aspects. Uh, you know, I was in a Catholic school, you know, got locked up by the students, saw and um, things happened. So there was a lot of uh, color as a youth, whether that be fanciful or real. But my memory is very akin to that movie. And uh, I was in a state of shock when that movie came out because I thought the director had followed me as a child and recorded me. So I started early on on this sort of thing. Um, 
you know, as a child, just being displaced uh, with everything around me is probably the best way to put it. And uh, that displacement has never went away. Hmm. So from your earliest uh, memories, then there was some sense of this present for you. Is that what yes. Was? Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. Mostly around the health and, and just, um, you know, the various states you get into uh, with that. Um, I met some folks who had epilepsy and they talk about what they experienced in their youth. And, and not that I had that, but it was just interesting that they felt a lot of them uh, felt something, too. Uh, with the way that their brain was forming and the way it was working. So, again, um, it makes it a rather unique story uh, so you, for me. So when you describe this, you know, is it a, a ever-present sense that there was more to the world than... Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You could see it. You could see it. Yeah, you could see it. Uh, it, was easy. it was easy to spot. You could see it. You could feel it. So, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, that's it. I'm, okay, well, I, I'm just, so I'm curious. I mean, you said it's predominantly about health. I'm wondering when some other dimension might have emerged um, prominently for you. What age and what was, what kind of manifestation? Well, it, it's, there was just a lot of um, activity, probably the best way to put it. Um, I dreamed a lot, but I was... Um, it was odd because I had a lot of out-of-body experiences, uh, uh, a lot of that kind of thing. And it was very hard on my parents, unfortunately. Uh, they had a miserable time with me. And uh, looking back at my age now, they deserve what they got, but I was not easy. And then they cursed me by saying, may your children uh, treat you. And yeah, my children also have uh, some, of, some things going on that seems to run through the family. So... Um, what really emerged, though, the turning point I think you're trying to get to is when exterior people start taking notice of me and pulling me aside and trying to help me hmm. and educate me. And most of them are all mystically based, um, if not all. And they just said, you know, you need to kind of kick over to this side of, of existence and this other side's really, really you're struggling with. So I make the Harry Potter joke of living under the staircase is kind of what it felt like. But I had really great people that went out of their way to kind of shepherd me as a young man into a different way of being. So this is this is uh, beyond youth at this point, where where you were meeting the. Uh, I'm about ten years old. Oh, if okay. you're going to age eight to ten. Okay. You know by. By 11, 12, I was into Crowley and into all the occult stuff that young people get into and, and ran. And by the time I hit 16. <laughs> Very occult. <laughs> well, Ran ran. She always gets connected over. She hates that, but she's gone, so she won't mind too much that people do that. But you, you balance the two, you know. Uh -huh. And then, um, you know, did a lot of work from that side of thing, you know, all the basic astrology and all the, you know, the basic things you just get into, which is fun. Um, good memories there. And, uh, and then, you know, I was 18 and decided to go on on my own. Actually, I left at 17 to be on my own and, uh, ended up working with Christopher Hills, uh, down in California at 18, very young and, you know, had met, you know, the Sufi stuff by 1920. So I was pretty much still in my youth. Um, 
when I met everything and really got connected into, you know, particular ways. So Christopher Hills, can you uh, tell us about that connection and uh, where that led to for you? Well, I uh, was in a bookshop and I saw the nuclear evolution, the book with the person, you know, meditating and the seven lights. It, it was quite, and it was a big fat book. So I bought the book and started reading it. And then I found out they existed, you know, they had a center down there. So I rode a motorcycle. So I went down there and uh, on my way, uh, I didn't know how to ride a motorcycle because I just bought the thing and it was my first trip and I'm leaving to Seattle area and I'm about three minutes into my trip and this older gentleman about 55 years old shows up beside me and looks at me like, what's your problem? You don't know how to ride a bike. I said, it's brand new. I just bought it. He goes, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Boulder Creek, California. And he looked at me like, you're crazy. You don't know. How to, you're with me. I'm going to Fremont, California. We're going to have a trip together. And he, this is the, the story. And then he taught me how to ride a motorcycle, and he taught me how to do everything and how to behave and not get killed. And I made it down there, and it was really great. I had a mentor all the way down as we went down to California. And then I uh, went into the school, and you know they had a school there, and I met a young woman that I immediately fell in love with, of course, and that was the most predominant thing. And so I decided to move down there and be part of the school. Unfortunately, uh, as in all things, the woman's side never worked out. And Christopher told me, well, you came for the woman, but you're going to leave with something else. And uh, you're not going to get the woman. And everything he said was true. So I spent, you know, a couple of years working with them, uh, learned a lot. Uh, the best story there, I always tell, is uh, being that I was, you know, still essentially a teenager. And everybody else is much older than me. They would do their meditations, and Christopher would always find a way to take his chair. I'd always try to get away from him because it just I didn't want to sit next to him. And he'd find a way to put the stool, the leg of the chair, on my foot, and he would lean and rock back and forth. <laughs> uh, and I'd always have a bruise on my left or right foot during the meditation. And I was like, no matter what I did, he ended up getting that chair on my foot. And would lean into it. It hurt. It hurt. But he wanted me grounded, and uh, he taught me how to. He taught me how to meditate as a young man. And I thought that was hilarious. Looking back, it was not fun. But I tried to hide, and he would just secretly move this thing with our eyes closed and take me out every, every meditation. So we did that for a year, and uh, and you know it, it was a good experience. It was a very good experience. Met some wonderful people, and. Uh, um, and uh, that was really the beginning of, of a formal of a formal training. And then, you know, he said, you know, sometimes the teacher becomes the devil to drive you to the arms of your real teacher. Uh, he was horrible. He was very difficult with me. And looking back, I wouldn't trade that for the world. Got it. So, what what did he drive you to then? So. Um, I decided to move to Hawaii. I mean, this is all about me. I don't know, kind of boring, but I decided to go to Hawaii. Um, you know, I'm 20 and, or, you know, wanting to meet, you know, the other side of life and get into it and sit in the beach. And I got intercepted <laughs> by this uh, whirly dervish thing that was in. And I said, oh, I'll just go the night before. I was going to buy my plane ticket the next day. And uh, I showed up and, 
within seven days, I was living in the Teke, which is the center of the school with the shake with my back to the wall wondering how the hell did I get here? I was on a, I was on my way to Hawaii and I'm here. And that was a very disconcerting moment. And I realized my life was going in a direction that I didn't really have much to say about. It appeared. And I stayed there for a very long time. And so I would say that was a great thing, but I got picked up on my way out. Never been to Hawaii, still trying to get there. Uh, but never actually made it to this day. Uh, but I will make it. But, so that's, that's really, and, and that was with Rashad Field. Um, and, the, and in the first week, uh, from the story you told, he was heading over to EJ Gold's, um, for the night that I think you guys are describing or one of the nights that was really interesting, colorful and, uh, epic. Uh, they decided to leave me there because I wasn't ready for EJ Gold. They, they said I wouldn't survive. And uh, he also said, uh, "You're with me. You stay here. You're, you're mine. You're gonna you're gonna work with me. I can't let you see anybody else for a while." And so I I stayed there for two and a half years, three years, actually in the center of the school working. Where was that? Where was that located? That was uh, Santa Cruz, California. Still in Santa Cruz. Okay. So yeah, you never actually got out of the Santa Cruz area, apparently, for quite a few years, it sounds like. Yeah, I was there for many years, yeah, many years. And then I went to uh, Texas to build a school um, and, and move the work out there. Uh, that ended colorfully, like most things. Um, a lot of good work got done, extraordinary work got done. You know, met my future wife there. But we built a school. It, it didn't last long, but it did a lot of good work for a lot of good people. Then I went back to Los Angeles. And that's where, you know, I grounded down for nine years, started a business and did a lot in Los Angeles and then eventually came back up into the Seattle area. So Los Angeles is where the bulk of my life was after Santa Cruz. So what were you doing? I mean, uh, uh, so you describe, a, you know, this is a, a broad arc that you've just uh, outlined. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the work, it sounds like, what you're basically saying is that Rashad Field was your primary teacher. He's a real teacher, absolutely. Yeah. No right. doubt about it. No right. doubt about it. And um, uh, and it's, uh, I'm assuming that this uh, trip out to uh, Texas to establish was part of that. Was, yeah. was part of your work with Field. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we uh, uh, Field was all over the planet. We had schools everywhere, you know, and different things. And the Sufism had, had, had been moving over. Mevlevi moved over to Nakshabandi. There's a lot of orders. There's just a lot of stuff um, to it all. Uh, but he was quite a focal uh, in his own right. And, uh, you know, it, it was very fourth way, but it was very um, wide in its birth. Uh, it had a lot going on there. And uh, I stayed with him for 14 years. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, three years living uh, almost, you know, on top of the man. Right. School, which, as you spoke in an earlier conversation we had, those times of actually living in the center is very different than orbiting the center. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd like to elaborate on that a little bit because I think that's a, a point that sometimes gets missed in contemporary spiritual practice. You know, that, that yeah. distinction of what it means to be working with a teacher on a like a 24-7 basis versus going to meetings once a week or a couple times a week. Yeah, yeah. So how was that for you? What was what was the 
the quality or the intention. The most excruciating thing I've ever experienced outside of a divorce. Um, it was truly shattering um, in terms of um, anything you think you can hold on to. You, it just slipped right through your hands. Um, it wasn't just because of the teacher. It was the environment uh, because um, we were graced with a real environment, a real uh, what I call a real school. Um, not to compare it to other schools, but I would say it had a living quality to it that the community and the rest of the students made up because there was a lot of people living there. It wasn't a commune like the and you know some of the other things I had done that was more communal and you know more socially based. This was really focused. I mean, you were there, you were working, and there was no back door, which is the key, I think, to the whole psychology of it and the emotionality of it, is you couldn't escape. Uh, a colleague of mine used to climb the tree and hide up at the top of the tree to hide out. And everyone knew where he was. They just left him alone because nobody could climb up the tree to get him. But he thought he was alone. There was no escape. You, you were facing everything all the time, 24 by 7. And it was very, very difficult. Um, I don't actually recommend it for everybody, but it was something to do. The question is, why do you stay? Why didn't you leave? You know, so many people came and went, but why would one hang on to that? And eventually, Fana'a Sheikh is where you let that go, and you realize that that, too, is a trap, and you have to let go of it all. And that was a hard period of being out alone with, like, wandering the desert with nothing but dirt and sand because that all that trapping disappeared, too. All that structure is a highly structured environment. Well, do you mean so? Are you, are you speaking to actually having at some point to let that structure go? Or? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you get attached to it, but and that comes, that comes a little bit later, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm jumping timelines. Sorry, I'm kind of wandering here with my thoughts. But, but I mean, in, in a sense, the you know, um, it feels like at, there's great resistance to the structure. Uh, initially, yeah. And, yeah, absolutely. And then ultimately, when when uh, it's okay to be with the structure, then you have to let it go. That yeah, well, it becomes yeah, it becomes unokay again. It's like this constant what we call phenomena, you know, where you have this dissolving, and then that remains. And the first part is, you know, my world dissolves, and I'm attached to a teacher in a school. And that becomes the central point of everything, right? And then that dissolves, and then I try to you know, go into life and hang on to that, and I feel I have something, and then that dissolves. And then you realize everything's constantly dissolving, and you really have to, you know, let go a lot more than, than just, you know, in, you know, these, these large arcs, as you said. Yeah. But, but the thing was, it, you know, it, there was a, the school, I, I always say it was like a Harry Potter school because he was British. So we had magic wands, you know, we had our little dowsing, we had the uh, dark arts conversations, we had their little classes. They were great. And they were very Harry Potter-esque um, and very, you know, very, very fun. Uh, different than the EJ Gold style and some of the other styles of other teachers in the areas that we were in San Francisco and, you know, various parts, you know, of the world. But... Um, you know, it was a process. The whole thing was a very enduring process, and it was difficult um, um, emotionally and mentally 
and uh, it, it was difficult, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, so 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 one of the things I want to get you to talk about here is is uh, you know you said it was immediately difficult, but actually you got pulled in by something presumably yeah. that was different. So, yes. so for a moment, talk about that, if you would, and then... So, we'll okay, I, I will. It was interesting. In On my seventh day, I did a, a, a self-practice that I made up, and I'll share it because I think it's interesting. But I had my back to the wall, and I'm going, like, how can I be in this place? You know, I'm on my way to Hawaii, and I just came out of the, the thing with the Hill School, and I was like, I, I you know, this... This is not for me. I'm going to do something else. And then I said, I'm right back into it. You know, what have I done? Why am I doing this? You know, what's the deal? So I wrote on a piece of paper everything I loved. And it's such an odd little thing, but um, I'll get into the shamanic thing later. This is a shamanic practice. I didn't know, but I uh, wrote down and I said, you know, no one can take this away. If Jesus showed up, I'd tell him to F off and, you know, this is my list. And you can't have it. You know, you can't take it from me. That was the criteria that no human being or no anything could remove this out of me. I loved it. It was mine. And when I got to the bottom of the list, I found this thread, this this incredible thread that I knew I was in the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. And that it, everything in my life had led me to that moment. And I've done that a couple, three times in my life. And it's an extraordinary practice because I realized I was where I was. And it was great. And that's what we call a thread of God. There was this tiny little thread that was connected to something greater. And then as you spend the years building it, you want to make it a rope. You know, you want it to be called the rope of God. Um, forgive me for the religious language but i don't know a lot of ways to express this call it we could say quantum entanglement you know from a thread string base all the way to a you know material base but that's kind of boring that's kind of boring so it really was getting to this connection and i felt connected i was received connected i was honored um it was grueling the teaching was tough but that was because it was real teaching. It was meant to be. Um, it was traditional in some aspects. Um, I get the fortune of saying I saw some of the old ways, um, which is kind of pre the new age and the new uh, things, which are, of course, probably all illegal now because they're way too rough. Um, you know, and I found out in the older days, they used to pound people's ears to the wall and, you know, tie them up and do dumb things to them. So, you know, things have changed over the years, but I got a traditional view of how things were done in some aspects while the new was being emerged in. Does that answer it or? It does, it does in part. And, and I guess, um, one, one further aspect I'll just inquire about is, is, um, Essentially, you're saying you found that you loved this thread. Or that yeah, you know, yeah, it was beyond belief. When I saw the pattern of it all, my heart emerged. Right. So I'm wondering what what part of the environment was tied. I mean, how, oh. not, not, yeah. not what part, but how the environment of the teacher, the school, et cetera, tied. I found my well. I found my well. It's like that story of digging a well. You're looking for water, right? Mm-hmm. And you dig a hole two feet deep, and you dig your 200 holes. Mm-hmm. When I hit 
in, a, in, in uh, that particular school and that particular line of work, mm-hmm. I knew that's where I wanted to drill. I see. I wanted to go down 200 feet, 400 feet. And I knew that. And I didn't have the seeker search aspect. It left The valley of search left me. I, I wasn't interested. And I just threw myself into it because I felt I was home. Mm-hmm. And it had a home quality. Now, I come from a broken home uh, on many levels. And I'm, I'm not chastising you know, my childhood. It's just it's a rough childhood. A lot of violence and a lot of things that are kind of not, not okay. Um, and most, a lot of people have that. I mean, millions and billions of people have, you know, rough childhood, but, and there's no complaint there because, you know, we choose our parents, um, and, and, uh, you know, we choose that before we come in, whether people believe it or not, that's a fact. Um, there's no accountability on our past, uh, life. We, we choose, um, and we're fully responsible because we, you know, the fruit of the cause and effect of its own effect. So we're the, we're the cause of our parents. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the accountability sticks with us in case people don't know that. But so looking back on it, um, it was a natural to go from one dysfunction to another dysfunction, right? It's like it was, well, that, easy, it was a short walk, right? Well, that's, <laughs> that's, that's actually a very important point because I was just wondering to, to what extent you felt like the impressions that you had as a, a child actually gave you the resilience to actually um, that's what I'm saying. You nailed it. That's exactly what I'm saying. I mean, if you look back, it's absolutely insane. Insanity. I mean, it's absurd. But you know, but uh, but there was something there, right? And every school is different. Every every way is different, and every group of people is different. This particular configuration of geometry worked for me, and for me alone, for me. And I knew it was time to drill. Um, good, bad, or ugly, um, and uh, it was good. It was good, and uh, I threw myself in as, as best I could. Um, and then, uh, as a true shake or a true teacher, they they made sure I couldn't find any keys or doors or windows unlatched to escape. And I mean that in humor because you're psychologically squirming to try to figure a way out of something when you don't want to face it or deal with it or actually learn it. But it's it's good to be held accountable. Yeah. I'd- I'm interested if maybe you could talk a little bit more. You used a word that certainly uh, resonates with me and resonates with the language that our own teacher used, which was squirming. And right. and it's it's and the way I, I experienced it was that you know the school conditions <clears throat> create squirming uh, rather consistently, and what distinguishes one's relationship to the, that, that environment is that if uh, some people develop a taste for that squirming and some people uh, run screaming. And yeah, it's a form of neglect or, or uh, what I call atrophy. Um, certain parts of oneself is ignored in the school setting. So if you're seeking attention, you don't get any. You want an ego stroke, you don't get any. Um, you want to feel satisfied with your work, you don't get any. Um, now, remember, the thing is, it's a school setting. It's not a living way of living day to day. And that's a huge mistake I've made and a lot of us have made as we try to move that in the real world and live our lives that way. 
and that's the epitome of being an asshole. It is a spiritually, it is not, it's a school setting. It is not the way to live life. And, uh, in my opinion, um, because it's just too harsh. But the idea was there's a part inside that kept seeking attention. Remember, I'm 20, 21, 22, and you, you really want to be, you know, asserting yourself. And everywhere you turn, it's like, why did you do that? What, what's behind that? I mean, did you really intend that? I mean, are you awake? Well, what the hell did you do that? And um, it just gets so much that you're realizing that everything, it feels like everything you do is, is under scrutiny. So, so it seems like you're, you're describing a, a familiar uh, thing to me, but um, in retrospect for myself, and I'll, I'll invite you to agree or disagree that, that, that this is actually a way to train in integrity. Because you're because you were saying that the the you know the school and the shaker or whoever has the keys, but actually you've got the key. You oh yeah. Have the key. And and the fact that you are staying through this process. The perseverance, yes. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 I, I certainly don't remember having that ideation about creating integrity from creating a way for me to live in integrity, but. But that's but that's another way to to describe this process. Is that does that? I, I would agree. I would agree, and I would add one other thing to it that mm -hmm. the balance was the you know there was I had you know for personally I had so many defenses I had so many things up I didn't really know where I was, but the process allowed something else to emerge to like grow like a little plant you know using that metaphor. And that was being watered the entire time and cared for and tended, mm -hmm. but I didn't even know it existed. Right. Um, and I was so caught up in the, the this other stuff that was dying, and it really felt like it was dying, even though that's just, you know, itself screaming, it's not real. Nothing died. Um, but it was getting smaller as this thing was growing. And, you know, many years later, it, it was a beautiful moment it, 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 but I'll never forget where I was talking. I mean, it's many years later, probably a decade later. And I said something to the teacher and to the, you know, to the people there. And I basically said, no, no, blah, blah, blah. And the teacher comes up and he goes, I'm going to miss you. And very carefully. He goes, you're here. you You've emerged. It's, now it's all up to you. That was a sad moment for me because I realized what was being said was, you're, there's a door, and if you don't leave on your own, you're going to be kicked out because you now have to go live life. And it was a rough moment, but it was beautiful in that something had to voice to it. It was like, no, I'm not doing that. Okay, I'm not agreeing to everything. I am not persevering this particular aspect anymore because I want to do something else. And the question was, what do you want to do? I have no idea. Great, you're not going to find that here. Go find it. And then you leave to find it. And and I think it happens with everyone, you know. And, but, uh, you know, you don't want to be a groupie in a, in a situation and just like, you know, that's my life. But that was an important moment. But that voice was a different sound, had a different character. 
and it had more authenticity, and it was me. And uh, I, I remember that because people responded differently mm-hmm. at that moment. My environment changed dramatically at that moment. Um, and people looked differently to me. My brothers and sisters of the school looked, in a way, more close but more distant. Mm-hmm. And it was different way of looking. Um, and then, you know, it got really rough. Teacher made sure that all the doors were open, all the windows were open, and all the air was toxic in the house. <laughs> so you had to run. <laughs> it's quite the opposite. <laughs> was that when uh, uh, you went to Texas? Uh, no, was, you know, Texas was part of the process. Uh, and, uh, you know, I had to go get a wife. And it's pretty hard to do in a school. And I had to go and create trouble around the world and uh, cause a lot of trouble. <clears throat> I got sacked. I got in trouble. And, you know, teacher flew out to straighten me out. It was good. It wasn't bad, but it was funny. I had to, my, my horse had to run. <laughs> so it was a controlled run. <laughs> but no, this is more in Los Angeles area. Okay. Um, okay. In, in that era. So, so this, when you describe this moment or this 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 uh, recognition, were you <clears throat> actually uh, uh, expressing a uh, like resistance to something that was going on? Yeah, or, absolutely, absolutely. Like, basically, you oh. drew a line, but that line. Well, was- I wasn't under a daub anymore. You know what a daub is? Is under characterized obedience. It's one of the Sufi terms, or um, you know, the terms from these type of this type of language. Is you're under characterized obedience. Um, and it's a way to get students to do what they need to do. Now, it can be interpreted that, you know, you're under cultish mind control, which is, yeah, it can be. I mean, it's hard to describe it without having someone say that's what it is. It's not really that, but because you still have freedom. But but you choose to be under obedience because uh, you don't know. And you're trusting that somebody knows better than you. But the truth is people make mistakes, all of us. And when you're under characterized obedience, you do nasty stuff, and you can, you know, it sticks, and you and you don't feel good about it. Like that's the inside. That's part of the process. But who are you doing it to is your, you know, the people in your school. So it's like you're all in the same class practicing. That shit. We call it grinding of the ego. We just grind on each other, right? Which is really horrible. But you practice until you realize that is just awful behavior. But you see it yourself. Yes. Yeah. And then you say, I'm not doing that. And then all of a sudden the school's looking at you, but this is how we do it. This is what we do. You know, this is the language we use. This is how we treat each other. You know, we're not that nice or we're super nice or whatever. It's like, we're, you were like, I'm not doing this. I'm done. And, uh, and then there's something emerges that's completely different and it's unique. Um, and I don't mean you can compare that to anybody else. It's, it's yourself and you're going like, I'm not participating. I'm not fighting it i'm just gonna do my thing and there's a there's a moment there that's i think pretty cool so that moment was uh you stepping out of the daub yeah yeah i didn't realize it to it but the teacher with under a minute comes by wow congratulations you just that's the rite of passage i have to he i mary he said i have to change how i speak to you now that recognition within a minute of me saying something had more profound effect than me saying what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Just the fact that somebody recognized that I was said something and all of a sudden I was being fed like you just said something. I'm responding to you. 
I need to change my way of handling you hmm. and how I treat you. And he said, like, we're now equals. You don't know anything either. Go figure it out. <laughs> so, at that, mean, really... <laughs> so, so at that point, uh, would you describe that as a journeyman state? Then that you're. I I don't know. I I it, it is a prog. You know, if you study Atar, the great uh, saint, you know, he lived life according to the writings, you know, he lived every state in order, kind of, you know, the whole progress. He had to experience kind of a, you know, from what I've read, in a, in a linear way, and experience every process, every step along the way, partly because he was into drugs, and he was a chemist, which means he was a drug guy. Uh, he was on the, on the path of drugs, and, and that's a valid path. It's not mine, but it works for a lot of people. But he had to experience everything and really almost document the stage A, B, C, all the way to Z. Not everyone does that. People jump steps and they go places. And, you know, it's very, very unique to the individual. So I couldn't say if there's a linear journeyman, you know, master type thing or any of that for myself. Um, but there was a passage, a shift, mm -hmm. uh, and, and the shift was real. Um, and, and, uh, you know, and you can get that at work. You can get that at a lot of places, but you got, you have it recognized though, is what I'm trying to say. I right. feel that we don't recognize each other's shifts and we're not helping as a, as a community. We really don't help each other that well. And noticing when people do make a change, we hold them in their old patterns and we don't see that, oh my God, this person actually has made a change and we should honor that by noticing it respecting it and calling it out and then changing how we behave to that person. And we hold our kids back that way. Uh, but we do it with everyone. We do it with everyone. You know, a colleague of mine had a major life change and uh, to see the being change through what he went through, it changed my whole relationship of how I have to treat him going forward. Um, but if we hold him back in the old pattern, it just gets to be really awful. Yeah. I, well, I, I, what's interesting also about this uh, is that the shift that you're describing is a very difficult shift to translate into ordinary life that, I mean, in, in the sense of being, expecting people to recognize that because. Oh uh, yeah, well, can't argue that, yeah. It's personal. Nobody notices. <laughs> well, well, I, I think this. this what uh, did you change your hair today? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, the, but I, I think what I'm getting at is that you use the metaphor of uh, uh, there was this part of you that was growing, while other parts of you were sort of atrophied. Yeah, yeah, or or if you know whether they atrophy or whether the part that's growing just gets so much bigger that the that other part is just small in comparison. There's there's a aspect or something about yourself that's growing that is qualitatively different than the ordinary mode of uh, a human psychological experience. Yeah, I don't know how to compare. Unfortunately, I just don't have the ability to compare to others because I um, my life doesn't have a lot of uh, what I call normal um, relationship that I can compare to. So I don't know that. Well, let me let me then ask you: um, Were there other, you know, uh, co-inmates, if you will, of of your school that you 
maybe in retrospect could see a similar shift having taken place. Or... Oh yeah, a ton of them, a ton of them. But every <laughs> shift is unique, right? And they're uncomparable, and um, and um, and yet this, there's this magic slippery something. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I give it, I give an example when is uh, I stayed with uh, I stayed the works of Henry Corbin. Um, that's a very deep subject for me. I really, really uh, personally found that to be uh, extraordinary, the Ishmali Sufism. And uh, it had a real resonance to me through the Zoroastrian stuff. I um, mean, it just, just, it's one of those things that I found in the well as I was digging, that I was digging through that stratosphere or that, that strata of stuff that that was very real for me. Mm-hmm. And I remember getting so excited to share it with the world that I went over to somebody and I told this lady who, you know, who was, you know, prominent in our school. And I said, look at this. And she slammed the door in my face, just slammed the door in my face. I will never forget. Just sit me out and slam the door. And I'm sitting there holding the book and I'm like, and I'm like, and then I had this whole thing. Like, what are you doing? You're trying to share a personal thing. They don't care. They actually, nobody in the world cares, but you, and it was this weirdest moment that I was actually, you know, faced off with this door slammed. But the moment was beautiful in that why would you share something that is yours? I mean, it, nobody cares. Leave them alone. So I went in. I apologized. She goes, what are you apologizing for? My dinner was burning. My kid was screaming. You were talking about some bullshit that made no sense. And I shut the door. And I said, no, you slammed it. She said, I didn't slam. Or did I? I don't remember. I can't talk right now. My kid's screaming. She had a baby. And, you know, it had nothing to do with her at all. She had no memory of the moment. And I had this profound moment with her. And she's like, whatever. Dinner will be served in an hour. I got to go change a diaper on a kid. And I was laughing because isn't that really kind of the core of, of personal growth? It's, it's not selfish, but it's to oneself. And to constantly put that in front of other people just doesn't make sense. So that's kind of the flavor I'm trying to articulate with what you've asked rather than the other because you can't really share it. You can only experience it and then emanate it through your being, through how you are. Well, but that's, to, I mean, but that's the key right there is, is because um, that process of being able to emanate from the the place of being who you are is something that you have to continue to practice over time and you and you just just described in a sense a mistake but it was a mistake that we all need to make in this process in order to learn to be uh learn to share with elegance learn to share at the moment when someone can actually listen and the baby isn't screaming and the dinner isn't burning and, you know, yeah. and share what they need because the right. definition of a teacher is to get someone to their own beginning in the shortest amount of time. That's the, 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 what I was taught is the definition of a living teacher mm-hmm. is to get someone to their own beginning in the shortest amount of time. And the key is their own beginning. And the shortest amount of time is if you have the grace to live with them, that's the, probably the fastest way because they do get irritated with you yes. and they will find every way to get you out of the house. 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, um, uh, so I've, I'm appreciating this discussion very much of, of your uh, uh, experience in the in Rashad Field School. Yeah. And that, but you you alluded earlier in the conversation to shamanic work. I don't know yeah. how to transition to that, but um, you. It's you, a good. Tra it's a very good transition. Um, I had been, you know, thirty some years in these, you know, the, that side of the work, mm -hmm. and it had broadened, you know, beyond uh, fields work because, you know, as you know, Sufism is a giant thing uh, with lots of areas to explore and. and um, but um, in 2000, I got very, very ill, uh, severely ill. Um, it's the first time I saw the color black, um, in which I can't explain it, but I've talked to people, and people who have the experience know when I say the color black, you can actually see it, which you actually can't see. Um, but I know this is something I know. And uh, I've talked to other folks, and I could taste blood in my mouth, even though I wasn't bleeding, there was no bleeding. Mm -hmm. And what I had, I had a brain hemorrhage, and um, it was pretty severe. And uh, I, it was, I was very ill. I laid in bed for six months listening to a fan going round and round. I was six weeks, excuse me. I'm getting exaggerational here. I get emotional because it was really awful. I had a migraine consistently. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I just laid in bed for weeks. You know, didn't go to the hospital do anything because I'm so smart. I just laid there. And eventually I could walk and get around. And my ex-wife didn't know, you know, my wife's time didn't know what to do. And she was used to me being a little odd. So she just fed me, kept me clean, and made sure I was okay, which I'm grateful to because without that, I, it would have been bad. And I'm glad I didn't go to the hospital and have drill holes in my head. So um came out of that, but I was really ill. So we decided to take a, went to Chaco Canyon, went down to the, uh, the Mexico areas, and I snuck away and I sat in the kiva illegally, mm -hmm. and it was like you know old, and I faced a question for myself. I'm getting tingles. This is a big deal for me. Um, do I want to take a shamanic path or the scholarly path? Mm. And I couldn't have both because I was greedy. I want all paths, and I took the shamanic path. And I gave up the scholarly path, which means I'm not accurate. I'm not disciplined. I can't remember anything right. And I'm not going to try. But I want to do something very different in being and live something completely other and become the thing. And not really, I don't really care if I articulate it or write it or whatever. I want to be it. And all of a sudden, my life changed dramatically. Um, everything changed. I eventually lost the life, you know, wonderfully, but I lost a lot of things, but, and I gained so much more, but the environment changed, the world changed, the external changed as well as the internal. So I met a friend of mine who I've known over 40 years, probably a good one for your show someday. He was my partner in crime during the, during the surfy days. Um, he, uh, he says, you know, I've been working with a shamanic. I think you need to go see them. And I went down there, you know, went with him to Portland where they were having a center. And I studied for several years there, um, with various people. And, um, the thing that was interesting, um, 
how do you word this? I'm getting emotional, so I can't think. Um, but it really was like a modifier. It added something to the work that I was done and brought it. And I saw that my teacher, Rashad, was very shamanic in himself and that he had been working with me with this all this time. But I had got caught up in all of the scholarly stuff, you know, the Middle East and the, uh, all the Buddha, you know, all the, the writings and all the geometry. You know, and that wasn't, I couldn't do it. So I made the choice to make the shift, and health increased, and that's really probably the, the core of the story right there. But a lot of my youth came back, because, uh, you know, they, they, the key with shamanism is, uh, from the way I was taught, it really is about why you're here, what's your purpose, what are you going to do with it. So it's about responsibility and impeccability, um, and about how you are in the world, and what do you safeguard? Uh, from a shamanic view, everyone safeguards something. So let's say you're in an asylum and you have a yellow, a blue crayon, and you're just doing blue all the time. You just I make you blue. I'd hate to get the job of having to safeguard the color blue, but if you did, you'd probably be in an asylum with a big blue crayon, you know, just coloring over and over, because that's your job is to take care of that blue exists. And, and uh, you know, there's stories of, you know, various people who get horrible jobs safeguarding very critical things and have to, you know, endure what that means. Uh, but we all have that ability that we need to safeguard something in existence from a shamanic point of view. And the shamans I work with really work hard to help you discover what it is that you safeguard so you can do your job properly so that that whatever that is, does, you know, exist properly. So that's the shamanic track um, uh, of it. And now I got my memory back. I had to stall my mind for about an hour. The uh, key that was really funny, though, when I met the uh, shamanic lady I studied with, she had me explain the arc that you just had me explain. Mm -hmm. And she, you know, the whole Sufi, all uh, whatever, whatever, whatever. And then she heard about the sickness. She goes, oh, my God. She started laughing. And she says, do you feel like your bones were boiled? And I said, no, I felt like my brain was boiled. And she goes, well, congratulations. That's when you started the shamanic work. You were picked by the spirit. And, and I'm like, what does that even mean? It's not an ego thing. But she goes, it hurts a lot, didn't it? She goes, I was a famous ballerina. I was a famous dancer. And most of the, my legs don't work. Almost died. Next thing you know, I'm doing this thing. And she says, when you get the, you know, the pack where you work with something spirit, um, they have a say. <laughs> and if they want you, they let you know. And I didn't know that was, was their view, a rich, uh, a rite of passage, the illness was a rite of passage. I thought it was something else. But I'm not trying to make it into like a special thing. Believe me, I tell my daughter who uh, is on the path of that to avoid it as long as humanly possible <laughs> till they're sure <laughs> they want you. But it, there is a, 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 a fundamental shift between the thinking from one type to another. To, uh, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm jabbering. Well, no, it, it, it's, it's interesting because I'm, I'm just relating it to moments that I've had. Uh, I, I don't frame it in the same way, but I've had uh, uh, 
about eight years ago, I had a, a serious, serious illness and you know, where I was essentially lost, you know, lost a big chunk of my small intestine and mm. in the recovery process, uh, uh, experienced this um sense of losing <clears throat> basically losing all the salt in my body because i um i had for a period of time a uh, ileostomy and basically all the uh, electrolytes were going out as i drank water and, oh, wow. and in the recovery process from that from going to the hospital and being sort of resalinated what they what they did was to like completely dry me out uh, wow and the I just remember being back home uh, and feeling this really strange sense of like having like this alchemical transformation taking place. And I don't locate it. It, it does. It, it, I don't know that it's the same as what you're describing. Uh, oh, I, I would say it, it's everybody's different. But you know what? Why not? Why not? It's probably... all, 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 I, all I can say is that, you know, this thing that was felt like this, uh, you know, horrific inconvenience in my life felt like this uh alchemical shift or this like like something fundamental was being shifted and i can't describe what that is it's just like it was such a full body sense of like the thing that i was normally in control of and just took for granted was uh out of my hands completely. yep yep yeah you you uk krishnamurti ug krishnamurti it's a different krishnamurti yeah, wrote a book krishnamurti. <laughs> Uh, mystique of enlightenment and the thing that I like and it aligns with some of the stuff I've been uh, getting from the Gurdjieffian folks is everything is, has a material to it and it's not fanciful like you know thought it's it ha well, even thought has a material but it has a material to it and change is physical mm. now chemical change is physical and I'll never forget uh, when my teacher my root teacher came up and says it really hurts, doesn't it? And I go, yeah, it's physically very uncomfortable, all this stuff. I, I don't like it. Because get used to it. <laughs> change is painful. And just realize that everyone doesn't like change for good reason. Yeah. But you chose to change, so shut up and deal with it. But, but also the sympathy, or the, uh, empathy, not sympathy, the empathy to see that change has a physical counterpart. Whether it be addiction, getting off, or getting on, or whatever, but change has a physical component to it. And some of us are blessed with a radical change. I'm not saying that you get higher or lower, like uh, uh, Boober. Oh, what was that Boober? The the Jewish says, uh, you know, as you progress, you just get deeper in meaning. It doesn't make your life any better. Right. <laughs> it doesn't make your life. Nothing gets better. Believe me, nothing's better. So, it's, it's, so yeah. that, like what you described then that uh, with this transformation there was a shift in perspective, mm. and I'm interested if you can, given that you you gave a very uh, articulate and clear kind of picture of how you came into your being through the work with the Sufis, what shifted or how how would you configure the shift in the uh, shamanic direction? We're not alone. We need to take a short break at the hour. You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. 
This week on the show, we present a pre-recorded conversation from July 6, 2019 with Richard Webb. Richard Webb has been driving the development of cutting-edge solutions in global Fortune 500 environments in the high-tech industry for over 20 years. As a young man, Richard entered into an intensive apprenticeship with noted Sufi teacher Rashad Field and ultimately worked with Field and his community for almost 20 years. Having established himself in the world both professionally and with a family, he found himself at a crossroads in the early 2000s that led to his initiation into a shamanic tradition. His work was soon complemented with the initiation into the Tibetan Chod tradition, which weaved in a web of community support into the sometimes wild and elemental work of shamanic tradition. He brings an earthy and immediate wisdom to our conversation that is both deadly serious yet leavened with humor and compassion. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined by co-host Dr. Robert Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Many Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. In this hour, we continue our pre-recorded Zoom conversation with Richard Webb. Richard Webb has been driving the development of cutting-edge solutions in global Fortune 500 environments in the high-tech industry for over 20 years. As a young man, Richard entered into an intensive apprenticeship with noted Sufi teacher Rashad Field and ultimately worked with Field and his community for almost 20 years. Having established himself in the world both professionally and with a family, he found himself at a crossroads in the early 2000s that led to his initiation into a shamanic tradition. His work was soon complemented with the initiation into the Tibetan Cho tradition, which weaved in a web of community support into the sometimes wild and elemental work of the shamanic tradition. He brings an earthy and immediate wisdom to our conversation that is both deadly serious, yet leavened with humor and compassion. We're a minor component in a very big specific. And you know what? we got to work well together. And the, shaman's de- uh, the definition of shaman is one who traffics with spirit. Mm, yeah. And, my, and, and so we traffic with spirit, or I do. Uh, what does that mean? Whatever it means. Um, but we're not alone. And there's a lot of beings and a lot of dimensions and a lot of stuff going on. And we are not the center of it all. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, we need to uh, work with the whole picture. Not everyone has the same job. Uh, when, I, when I was inducted in Buddhism, which is my third track, I got inducted into 11th century Buddhism uh, for the Chode side of the business um, through the Rinpoche down in Portland. Um, it was an interesting moment because they didn't ask permission. They just inducted me. And I'll never forget, he comes up, you know, he's Tibetan. And this leads, this will answer the question. Um, but he says, give me your stuff. So I reach in and I take off my necklace and, you know, my, my Apple watch. And, you know, he's going to go bless it. He goes, no, no, give me your stuff. So I give my, and he goes, give me your stuff. So I reach out, pull the Tesby out. Okay. My, my dowsing thing. And, are your pockets empty? Yes. He puts it in a bowl and he goes over, he does his prayer and does his blessing. And he brings back and says, everything's been purified and put it back in. But if anything is, he goes, your stuff. He knew there was like a lot of paraphernalia, right? 
-hmm. And he goes, you're now, in my words, because I'm not Tibetan, you're inducted into this lineage. And I go, you didn't even ask. Everyone asks, I have a choice. He goes, yeah, maybe. No. He goes, what you're doing is too dangerous. And it's not safe. And I want you to know that we have a lot of people that pray every day and work every day to make help you be safe. And you need to do your job. And you need to be around for a while. It was a beautiful moment. But the Buddhists brought in a perspective that made the shamanism look un, like it needed, it needed to balance the shamanistic piece into a grounding into a larger order. So the spirit and everything got grounded through the Buddhism into something that, that felt right. And then he explained the actual job that I had to do, which I'm not going to put on the call because it's kind of private. It doesn't really matter. But I got the actual marching orders of what it is I actually do. You got it from the uh, uh, Buddhist. So I got the recognition from him through that order. And I said, well, this is my vocation. And in short, I work for death. You know, I work for death. I'm a, you know, uh, I have race as buddy, but we help things pass. Um, it doesn't mean people, but it means a lot of things. You know, there's that prospect of change. And I realized the Sufism, the shamanism, the Buddhism, but the Buddhism actually told me the vocation. Your vocation is this, therefore thou needs this, and we're going to give you the ability to do your job. Do you see that third piece with this? So the shamanism brought forth all the pieces and this incredible insight into the ecology of everything and the spirit and how it all fits together, but how there's, it's all alive in the upper, lower, middle world. We break it into pieces. We have a lot of language, but if you pound two rocks together, it works. That's the part I love about shaman is you don't need a cerebral cortex. You don't need a brain. You don't need to be fourth way savvy, okay, or Gurdjieffian brilliant, or you just can bang some rocks in the right way and it'll happen because it's all connected. Now, I'm not saying that doesn't exist in every tradition, but for me, I had to get it through this other way. And then the Buddhists just put the safety net under it all and said, this is, this is, well, go do your job and realize we're all with you. This is that help? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, actually, it, it's very interesting. Um, I'm, I'm intrigued by the fact that you're pointing to the Buddhism as, as helping solidify an understanding about death, because in like uh, Japan, I know, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the the social understanding of the place of Buddhism is all around death. It's taking care of death. It's dealing with death, and then uh, people go to the Shinto temple for, you know whatever else, whatever else they're, they're looking for fertility or marriage or whatever. So, uh, you know, it's, um, uh, there, there's a widespread cultural understanding about that particular role for Buddhism in a lot of Asian cultures. And in the shamanic, you know, the way I was brought up is we don't die. You know, there is no death. It's, it's all an illusion. Okay. And in Sufism, they kind of hint towards that, right? Die before you die. Um, but in, in the Buddhist thing, it, it's really about transitions, helping major transitions, right? From right. one state to another, but through, you know, a serious, 
serious piece. Um, and so when I say death, I don't want to limit it to, you know, physical death. Right? Yeah, no, I, I you know, I know, and I know, I know you know that I just, for the radio here, I'm trying yeah. to be cognizant of the language because we really consciousness doesn't die. It just divides and it veils itself so it can learn. And, and consciousness is additive and subtractive. You can add pieces and you can remove pieces. It's very mathematical, actually, uh, from my perspective. Um, you can divide it. You can multiply it. You can do all kinds. Of, it's very mathematical. But it, the veiling and the removing of the veils can be really interesting. And then having to handle that through what we call a death experience is extraordinary. But death happens in corporations. That happens with everything, and you know it's it's uh, you know it. Well, I, I'm, running, I'm running out of words, so ask well, the question. Well, I'll ask, I'll ask the question because uh, uh, since Rob well, started ramble. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, the what you're describing as part of your the nature of your work is to uh, work with death. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering if. You've raised up this, the, I don't want to say the specter of death, because I think it's something much bigger than a shadow. Um, what, what is your understanding? Or what is your, what is, what is this? Well, there's a, it's called panarchy, P-A-N-A-R-C-H-Y, or panarchitect. I'm an architect, so I'm into panarchitecture. And panarchitecture is the architecture of ecosystems. Mm-hmm. So it's the architecture of architectures. And there's a book at it. You can get it. Um, Gartner, the, you know, it's a computer people. They get into it. And there's been a major study. But basically, the gentleman, uh, Gray, who invented the S-curve for business, you know, the S-curve, you, yeah. you know, business is doing S-curve. Well, he's the, he's the inventor of that. And I got to meet him. And it was when I was one of my periods of unemployment. I went to a conference. And I sat in the audience. And he says, you know, there's this thing called pan architecture. And there's this. I did the S-curve, but I got it wrong. And I knew he'd gotten it wrong because I knew it was a figure eight. And I, I just had this understanding. And I, I and this back loop is the, the, the loop of death. S is life, the bottom is death. Or you can say rejuvenation or rebirth or whatever words you want, but it has to do with serious change. And he goes, here's the picture. And I had drawn that picture. And I got so upset, I thought he stole my work. And he goes, there's only five people in the world that know what this is. And he told all five, but he didn't mention my name. <laughs> and I was ready to stand up and call him out. And just, I mean, I had that really weird academic, how dare you, sir? <laughs> I want a citation. <laughs> I want an honorary degree. But you know what? It went away as fast as it came. And I realized I wasn't crazy, that I was crazy. I thought I was a little crazy, but I'm not crazy. He goes, this is a natural law. It was discovered in the 1800s by a biologist. And this is a law of nature. And what it is, is I had stumbled across it through my work when I was doing high-tech work. And I was working with the S-curve, and I was told to do something, which was impossible. But I tried to solve the problem, and I came up with the back loop, what we call the back loop. And I realized my entire existence has been working on that back loop in business. And when I did uh, figure it out when I was 50, what my actual job was, my uh, my income tripled. And I stopped, I didn't get fired all the time. 
It actually knew what the hell I was doing and why I was there. And everybody says, ah, oh, finally, you know why you're here. Uh, can you please do your job and pack up when you finish? And I go, of course. I know when to leave now. I know when to leave. I never knew when to leave. And then they'd have to, you know, that's how you, you know, for me, that's how you get fired because I always hung around too long. So the thing that was interesting is having that, the Buddhists really got that set up spiritually. And then in my secular work, I got it, you know, technically through the architecture work. So I think pan-architecture is probably one of the best ways or pan-archy to look at death from that. It's a bit heady, but it brings a certain symmetry to it in the figure eight, the affinity symbol, where they split it in half. And it shows that um, there is a return, the path to return, which, by the way, is the Sufi path to return. So the pattern fits through all three of my arcs. It's the same thing from childhood. It's just this pattern, which is the rope of God and for me. And it, it, it gets you this sense of why you're here. Now, you can't give that to other people because everyone's here for their own reason. But, uh, you know, I safeguard that. I definitely pay deep attention to that subject hmm. and work every day to keep that going the right way. So the, well, I was just going to say that's interesting to me because, you know, I've seen some people who um, focus attention on how unpleasant it can be during that uh, return, as you're, as, you're, as you're calling it. And um, while I wouldn't dispute that um, at all, there can be a, I, I've seen teachings that, that, that um, I think create obstacles that don't have to exist by creating a mood, as it were, as a word we were using earlier today, um, by creating mood around that, um, that part of the movement in the, in the overall process. And um, it's interesting to me, I, I hadn't remembered that phrase about Sufism in terms of return uh, until you just, uh, I hadn't thought of that for, for many, many years. I'm wondering if you could elaborate that a little bit in the Sufi context, because I, path I, of I return. Never, yeah, the path of return, because I'm just not, I'm not quite clear how the Sufis can configure that. And since you brought it up. It well, you know, it's all my opinion, because a lot of, you know, if you meet a Sufi, you're supposed to kill them, right? Because they don't exist. But the idea of that body of, of thinking, there's a lot of different ways to do it. But for myself, um, we we all are not the same. Quality and essence, hierarchy and function. But also where we are in the life cycle of existence isn't the same. And it's not a linear thing. So you, you can be very evolved and then, you know, decide you need to go back 50 stages and pick something up. It's like going to college and going back to be a freshman. You can do that in being. And you can veil the fact that maybe you do something once, but you veiled it so you could re-experience it in a way so that you're more of a teenager. People do this every day. They just don't realize they do it. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we have to give some credit to you know, what we are and that we have a lot more capability than any of us want to admit to. Even those of us who sit on bar stools all day drinking beer are doing interesting things. May not consciously do it, may not be fully in charge of it, but we're doing things. So to your point, 
of that, there, you know, you look at passive ascent or a path of, you know, affirmation. I'm here. I'm here. I want to experience. Give me a four wheeler. I'm going to go out and, you know, rip up nature because I want to like do wheelies and shit. Um, or I want to go to a party. I mean, I'm, I'm making a, a, just this general statement. Um, it doesn't mean that I, that's what it is, but this idea of asserting oneself on the universe, you have to have that. I mean, if we didn't have Steve Jobs, would we even have an iPad that functioned? I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of assertion there to make that stuff happen. Yeah. I work in high tech. It's the it's the erectile assertion of people upon the planet to get tech working. Because technically, it's impossible to make it work. And once you get it working, it looks like magic, right? And if you make it work really good, everybody wants it for some stupid reason. And then they wonder why we're all dying. Oh, that brings me back to the path of return. Oh, yeah. So we have to go back to the path of return because you can't have one without the other. And that's where you're not asserting yourself on the world. But the world's asserting itself on you, but you are taking it with you to the next place. There's the key right there. And there's the key. Yeah, you, you guys get it. And, and uh, that's it. It's very simple. Nice. Well, th thanks, because, I, I, you know, um, I haven't read as much or been exposed as much to Sufi's uh, expression, um, I'm sure, as you. And, and so I, when I, I see these evocative phrases and, or hear them used, and then I, it's like, I want to know more yeah. about that. Yeah, we have a, in that literature, there's a lot of single liners. Yeah. <laughs> <lot of> <laughs> right. <laughs> Expectation is the red death. I still don't know what that means. Ooh, so, I never heard that one before. <laughs> yeah, expectation is the red death. I, maybe somebody will tell you and you can tell me. Because I asked the teacher and he's like, I get it, don't you? And they want it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. uh, uh, one, you know, you, you mentioned earlier about uh, the role of uh, teaching. And the uh, the function of a teacher is to uh, bring you back to your own beginning. No, I'll be precise. To get one to one's own beginning in the shortest amount of time. I want to be precise because there is some precision there uh, around uh, that. So how do you relate to the uh, function of, of the teacher now? Do you... Uh... Well, Hadi, which is the name, is, you know, the 99 names. I mean, I'm, I'm a name guy. The Hadi is in every moment. So the Hadi, uh, there's only one teacher. And, and so life is a teacher. Uh, you're teaching me on this call. Um, I'm observing you and I'm seeing what I'm saying and, and you're telling, you know, so there's always a presence of a teacher. Uh, the, it's like the observer with an agenda, right? So you have an observer, but the teacher has an agenda. That's why the Hadi is not a safe name. Uh, some of the names are safe and some of them aren't. And a teacher is not safe. They're very dangerous. They can, they can lead you astray, which is another one-liner. And, uh, and so they can get you to your own beginning but actually miss the mark, and you're not at your beginning. And now uh, you're at a new learning, but you're not at a beginning. And who's that on? That's on you, right? We're, we're cause effect of its own effect. The pupil makes the teacher. The teacher does not make the pupil. So therefore, if the pupil goes astray, then maybe they need to reevaluate the teaching role. But it's a te the pupils make the teacher. So the idea is to become a pupil. 
And isn't the pupil the eye of God by which one sees? And that hopefully you catch the light of it going through the pupil? So it's all about being a pupil. The weird thing is you can't see the pupil. You can only see out of the pupil. So we have to go back and give ourselves some credit. We make teachers. I mean, am I assert that Gurdjieff could not be Gurdjieff without the people around him, right, who made him the teacher? Otherwise, he's to be today painting canaries and drinking Armagnac. I mean, who the hell cares, right? I mean, who the hell cares? How many great teachers never had anybody around him to even talk to? You know, who the hell cares? Um, so it really is right place, right time, right people. That's why I love the environment. And as an architect, to me, it's the environment and the pan-architecture of it all. This is my particular thing because it's what I do and what I care about. Everyone has their own vocation and their own frame, so to speak, for spirituality. We need a frame. Mine happens to be architecture. So the geometry demands a container for an environment for change, the crucible, the grail. And that is really, really important. And the shape of that makes a difference. That's where the teaching lives. It's always present. But it does sometimes get set in a frame. Does that answer it or is that too vague? Oh, it's a, it is an answer. It's sort of a, it, it evokes. You don't look satisfied. Well, I, I, uh, <laughs> I am. I'm not, I, it, my lack of satisfaction is that it's sort of uh, taking me in a slightly different direction, which is, bringing us back to the uh, um, uh, path of return and the, the, the nature of death, because it, 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 it's the, I, it seems like the ferment or the, the crucible itself creates this ferment, which uh, uh, accelerates and causes what we take for granted to pass away or to shift. And for me, I, so much of uh, my own spiritual work is continues to be about just learning to be able to let go and not not hold on to anything that is apparently the case. Mm -hmm. And to the so, extent so that I can do so that, expectation is the red death. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you got him there. <laughs> he doesn't want to say. Yeah, I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> It's a, it's a red. It's a you gotta, you gotta love these one-liners, man. I know. <laughs> They're very useful sometimes. Yeah, they stop the brain in its tracks. Exactly. Um, um, yeah, I don't know where you're going, but I mean, what were you, you know? But go ahead, go back to your original path. So my my original question was more about uh, was bringing it back to the personal in terms of the function of the teacher and uh, your own relationship to that function. Oh, well. I'm grateful to the function it, it, because it got me to what I feel is the beginning of something. I mean, obviously it is. Apparency of change versus reality of change. Um, the biggest danger is the apparency of change or spiritualization of the ego. Um, as the energies arise up and if the ego is still seated, it can become spiritualized and it becomes a dictator. And it becomes a menace. Um, I can honestly say that the teaching functions that I've experienced have done all they could to prevent that. Um, and 
I'll never forget when I met the shamans, they told me Sufism wasn't real. It was completely fanciful, and I was completely uh, indoctrinated. And in order to work with them, I had to give it up. And I'm looking at them like, you're insane. That's impossible. And they're going, we'll deal with the requirement. Because you're, you're the worst student we could ever have. Because you come in <laughs> full of shit that nobody, and they never heard of Sufism. What do we care? We bang rocks together, for Christ's sake. What do you do? You tell them what you do, and they go, what the hell is that about? So anyway, so you suspend it. Like quantum, you just put it in suspense. You can't get rid of it. You suspend it. Yeah. yeah. And then I'll never forget, after about three years, it takes about 10,000 hours to do anything, right? So, you know, in the 10,000th hour, they go, you're free. You can go. You did okay. I go, what does that mean? They said, you can't hurt anybody now. You've lost the power to hurt people. And they don't mean I can't offend you and hurt you emotionally, but you're safe. When you arrived, you were unsafe. And that Sufi stuff, you were not safe. You're not a safe man. And I was thinking about that because that really hit hard. And they're women. These are women teachers. And women do have a thing about safety, which I deeply respect because as a male, I wish to protect, which makes me unsafe by design. But, and I, that's real. I mean, I, I intend to be not safe, okay, just for the record, uh, to protect. However, that had some qualities to it that I thought was interesting. But to be told that was a profound moment that changed something. Perfect timing. I love it. <laughs> I could ask for more drama. Thank you, Spirit. So, someone's calling. Yeah. And, and that's the key. That was the key. That safety allows something to enter in from the outside and and make something happen. So, sorry, I'm getting kind of otherworldly there, but I don't know how to express that. But then they said, do whatever you want. Bring all that other stuff back. I said, I had it in suspension, so I just brought it back. But it came back differently, if that makes any sense. Well, it would have to if, if, if they were um, accurate in saying that you had there was a, a, a phase shift for you and the thing to your point is the teacher role is the same i felt like i was working with the same teacher in all the real teachers does that make sense like there was a quality about each one that was like the same teacher the rope the thread mm-hmm. even though they're all different i felt something behind each one mm-hmm. that was the same and I can't explain that. I mean, maybe you guys can explain it better than I. But it felt that there was a continuity of the teaching. And maybe it's just me making everything continuous. But it felt like there was an overarching program of the teaching. And each person who was – no, I had a lot of teachers that weren't, I'd say, great teachers. Or they're probably learning companions, I'll call them that, rather than teachers, okay? Because they were horrible. But – uh, they were self-proclaimed teachers, though, and they were interesting. But a real teacher, you know, getting to your own beginning, not their beginning or somebody else's beginning or some concept, um, because there's no conceptual thinking at your beginning. It's It has nothing to do with anybody but you. So it's absolutely as intimate as personal. It's like trying to have a mate. It's about as intimate as it gets, right? 
either like the person or you don't. It's deep. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and this is like dating yourself in a very weird way. It's, if you don't like yourself, you probably got problems. So you got to get into that. And the thing is, is the teaching role, the way I relate to it is that. And I persevered with what was behind it ever since I was a young man. And I, I, I'm grateful to myself for having recognized that at an early age that there was something behind it that I could commit to. And wow, I'm in tears. Wow. Um, and I'm grateful to that because that has sustained me for 60 years. Well, um, so, so let me further ask, uh, because you mentioned that your daughter is uh, doing her own. Well, my son too, but she's okay. got her shamanic piece. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. She's not practicing, by the way. She absolutely stayed in denial. If she hears this radio station, she'll call me and scream at me. <laughs> absolutely. It's all bullshit. <laughs> Got it. Everybody uh, around her, everybody around her goes, keep that attitude as long as you can. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but that's but that to me is part of part of uh, uh, an effective teaching role. Uh, so, um, um, do we still have you? I'm here. Can you okay. hear me? Okay, sorry. Uh, I got tearful. So I went away. You were so still. <laughs> Uh, on the screen there for a second that uh, that I uh, was like, oh my God, it, he froze. He froze <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that was cool. Anyway, I'm 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 interested in this teaching role. You know, I, I don't have kids, and uh, and and yet I have relationship, especially now in my mid sixties. I'm I, I seem to be having more relationships with younger people. Yeah. have t the taste of, of, you know, of, of teaching. And I'm wondering what it's like to have gone through the, if you will, course of study that you have done in your life, the processes that that entails, and to have this intimate relation, bodily relationship with offspring, physical offspring, and how that matter, how that feels in terms of a teaching role, um, it, it's a an interesting question for me because of my not having that physical role this time around. Well, for myself, the most it was it, it, I tried the hardest not to put any of this on the children. Mm-hmm. And um, I come from a very violent background, as I told you earlier. And um, and my wife had her issues from her childhood. And we made an agreement early on that the buck would stop with us, that we wouldn't pass any of the ancestral stuff through. Mm -hmm. And we made a conscious decision not to pass ancestral work through to the children. Mm -hmm. um, it's a crazy thing to do, but we... That was the core of our marriage. We made that decision, and I'm very grateful to her. Uh, I love her, but she's she kept to the word, and and uh, she suffered greatly for it because that means we had to absorb a lot of the ancestral stuff that we could have just passed. Right. And um, and um, there's been a lot of um, issues around that. I mean, um, she got very ill and almost died, and and it's all ancestral. So the key is is 
that didn't pass. Now, there are pieces that went around us, the little bastards, mm -hmm. and stuck through us that we couldn't stop. So there's the control piece that you can't win. You can win. do what you can do. You can do what you can do. And even if I had more ability and more knowledge, those pieces were going to make it anyway. Mm -hmm. And we lost some family members who wanted to teach the children and embody as much industrial stuff. We had to forbid them to even be in proximity because they were courting them, you know, courting yes, yes. Uh, uh, to transmit. And it had to be stopped. So that was the job of the parent was protection and, and not teaching, per se. I probably failed in the teaching role. Um, and I mean that because there was so much in the other role that I – uh, and as a provider, I, I couldn't find out how to balance the teaching. But I decided that maybe teaching all the school stuff and the books and everything was probably irrelevant, um, even though I have everything in storage. So if I died tomorrow and they went in and opened the box and they know the names on the box, my son will have the entire history of the school in a box for him. So and he's an older man. He will have everything. Okay, that up to the moment where I left the school, which is significant. My daughter is a living example, and she's on the shamanic piece, so she'll have to experience her own way. And when if spirit, if spirit calls, they will take care of the, the piece because it will be that way. So the teaching really, it was different for me. Mm -hmm. And I remember something my teacher told me, and this is kind of funny, but he says, Richard, you're not going to do well. You're not going to make it this life. Um, you just don't have what it takes. And, the, you know, you're just not going to make it. But you will love your children, and they will know they're loved. And that's enough. You know, I thought he was being mean. Mm -hmm. But I think he was very kind as I get older, because they know they're loved. And that was the only thing that really mattered. Um, I tried to get two things with my children. I wanted my son to retain his imagination. I failed him because he's all imagination. Hmm. And I can't seem to get him grounded. So that's his life. But he did really well. He, he compensated for all the problems that I had because that was, that was my mistake. I, I had a hard time keeping mine. And I wanted my daughter strong. There's a female and now she's like, impossible so i failed. i told him i failed you both by making you superpowers too strong i should have weakened you and they laugh but they go yeah you did that's on you <laughs> you know but life will tame them and and turn them well and the thing was is i cautioned as a parent that my two fears um you know, I wasn't fear of my son being gay or, or any of the things that a lot of people are, you know. But one thing I wanted for my son was to get educated. So he told me educations for the week. He became a pro gamer and refused to get out of high school. That was the worst thing he could do. It was like, you got to be joking me. Really? He goes, Dad, I'm not getting a diploma. You know, and money's money isn't real. And I'm going like, oh, my God. You know, he manifested it, right? And I was just like, that's, I couldn't pay for that. Because everything, you, you look at him as a baby. I held them both, one in each hand, right? They fit in one hand. I'm like, this is what I don't want you to do. And, of course, they do it, each one, perfectly well orchestrated. My daughter, she's 14, comes in and goes, Dad, we're done. 
you did the best you could. It was okay. You could have done better, but we're done. He said, what, you're emancipated? I'm fully emancipated, Dad. Everything's on me. You're free to go. I go, Jesus, you're 14. Can I have a couple more years to hang around or what? You know, she kicked me out at 14. So, uh, you know, they manifest the things you don't want. So the teaching role, I think, is really at a being level and not bringing the Sufi, the Buddhism, the, all that in. I'm sorry for the long story, but as a father, I really don't know how to talk. I never had a father. My, I was adopted. Um, you know, I had a stepdad, but my father died when I was very, very young. And um, hence all the stories I've been telling. But so... I didn't have a role to relate to, so I had to make it all up. Mm-hmm. And probably that's a good thing and a bad thing because I, I didn't have anything to work with um, that I could emulate in the father role. So well, I, I appreciate your, your, especially what you had, what you started off with in terms of protection. Yeah, that's the key. Because I think that's, um, I, you know, I, that's what I wanted to hear, I guess, for me, I'll, I'll, I'll admit. You know, that that was... Um... We're safeguarding the future. Okay. Okay. So it can evolve, and yeah. you know, and, and emanate, you know, emerge. Well, I, I mean, one of the things, one of the abstract ideas that comes to my mind when I reflect on what you've been saying in this conversation, which has been very moving at times, Richard, and I thank you for that. Well, not all the time, so I'll take that as feedback. <laughs> And, the teaching and, never stops. And please do. <laughs> I'm working on it. I'm working on it. God. Well, after God, the movement, dude, after the movement passes, there has to be some time before the next movement. The- I guess you're right. God, the audience is never happy. <laughs> but always looking for more. Yeah, yeah. No, but but what what. You you are describing a, a, a trajectory that is, as, as you've been pointing out frequently, uh, utterly unique and yet also resonant with my own in terms of these, this core experience of working with a teacher in a school and then expanding in uh, through the shamanic stuff and, you know, all the subsequent stages that that you're that you're that you're pointing to, and and that's um, a really it's a different model than used to exist in the world when people didn't get to move around very much. Well, I actually would disagree. This really? is our first okay. disagreement. I would. Okay. Uh, I have studied a bit and I have looked at some stuff. Mm-hmm. What I've come to realize is there was a we're all the bee is a big deal this cross-pollination mm-hmm. uh, look at Hafiz look at all the great they traveled and the students traveled and they traveled and they mixed things together they mixed the okay. church the Christian with the it's always been mixing it's only since we got puritanical thinking with a very small population that became dominant you know a few hundred years back and the inquisitions and all this historical nonsense 
But no, people, you know, as many illegitimate babies today as there was then, probably more because you have more population, but we haven't changed that much. We really do cross-pollinate between, that's why I hate to talk about the Sufis or the Buddhists, because there is a line of written literature you know, literature and study that they've done, you know, that, mm-hmm. that, 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 you know, and that's the intelligence of it all. Mm-hmm. But the actual spirit of it all is totally intertwined. And I don't think that we're in a less or more than we were then. I think in some ways we're less because we don't have the curation of material. And we have a lot of what I think of distracting falseness that was weeded out because we have more time and just more means of self-expression than maybe they had back then. Because there to go to a school was a big deal, right? Yes, if well, I, I sent you to go to another another town to meet another teacher, whatever, whatever group that was, sure. it mattered how you behaved, right? Because you came back and you were like a, a terrible, then that reflected on my school and, or your school or what, you know, just, there's a different social order because it was hard to travel now with the internet we can study everything simultaneously like who cares it's all equal so i think we're in maybe in a disadvantage now with information overload than back then but i have to say everything i've seen there's buddhist and sufism there's sufism and christian there's i just even you know when they hit south america it's like all that shamanic stuff went right into europe the drugs mainly yeah. Well, I, I don't disagree. I don't dis- disagree with anything. Am I, am, do you see where I'm disagreeing? No, no, no. I, 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 I mean, I mean, it's, it's. Um, I guess what I my my point was that you know, generally Sufis would study with Sufis. It was the the unusual guys that that oh. beyond beyond uh, one cultural sphere, and that was mostly because it it was so hard to travel. And you're making the point. This point about curation uh, is is interesting to me. Partly in those times, they were cu- curating a lot of material. They were yeah, wondering. yeah, and and that's what the one of the things that Gurdjieff really brought to uh, an appreciation for to the West. It seems to me, and yeah. I don't. I think he's not fully understood yet um, on that on that level. Well, he's only been dead for how long? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Sixty years or whatever. Yeah. yeah, it takes a long time for the dead to be understood. But, you know, one one point that uh, you're emphasizing here that I think is unique about what you've been describing is that when you would move to a different path, you were all in. And that's in quite, you know, I think the the, uh, downside of the information overload we have is that it it can promote a certain kind of... um, uh, Superficiality. Uh, yeah, superficiality and uh, the kind of uh, dilettantism where people <clears throat> move to something until it becomes uncomfortable and then they move to something else until it becomes uncomfortable and they flit around in that way. And <clears throat> you had a hunger for something that was uh, different. It's interesting. You know, forgive me if I, I have a story, but it's just, I've heard this story, but I, you know, it, may, it may not be true, but this is what I was told. But with Ospensky and, and Collins, his student, Mm-hmm. Um, I was told this story because I came up through the Bennett side of it, you know, through uh, the Gurdjieff, through Bennett. That's how I touched the Gurdjieff. But, and I studied the Collins and the Spensky, but it was more of a just study, right? Mm-hmm. But I heard this story that uh, Spensky was dying, and 
he and Collins was there, and Collins goes, "What is the key? What's the key to it all?" Because I I'm missing the key, and you know how that feeling you you, you know what is the what's the key you know, and uh, and and it was the last moments, and Collins picked up Ospensky and took him up to see the sunset, uh, the way the story was retold to me, and he got to see it. It was his last sunset, and it was. Collins was struggling carrying the body, you know, because he was sick. And carrying a human being is very hard. Um, and he took him up there and he carried him all the way back, put him in bed. And Spensky says, you finally put yourself into something. Totally. That's the key. Mm. They put himself in by carrying him to see the sunset. Mm. And it was painful. It was hard. It was, you know, intentional suffering. It was all the things we read about, all the, all the words, all the books on the shelf behind you. But the act of actually just abandoning oneself and just going all in, that was all it was. And that it was the story, because I asked, what's the key? And that's the story I was given. And I think, I think, I feel... I am, you know, that is the key is to put oneself into something to get to the bottom of it. And if it's not real, it dies. Bana. If it is real, it stays. Baka. And that's how you do it. It's not like card. It's just you got to do it. You put yourself in 100%. Or, you know, until you get to the bottom. Or you unravel it to the end. And stick with it. And then people might think you know something, which just means you got to the bottom of a dry well. It doesn't mean damn thing. Hmm. Or you found some water you couldn't drink. Or maybe you could drink it, but nobody's down there with you. So either way, you're by yourself. Um, and when, all you have is stories. But you did something with your being, with having a physical body, having a physical mind, and having a physical emotion. You actually applied it into a work that you chose to do to the end. And, you know, artists do this, you know, landscape people do it, mowers do it, they finish the yard, right? Well, we're seeing in the, in the next generations, not putting them down in any way, but they don't finish necessarily because there's so much there's to so do, much. Yep. to do, to do. And there's so much overwhelming of information and the problems are so uh, beyond a single mind to understand that they have to work together to get to the bottom of some of these things. But when work on oneself is about you getting to the bottom of your own, what you choose to do. And we got to make sure we don't get lost between what we're doing for others as collective versus for ourselves. And I see that's a huge confusion right now. Um, can't do much unless you put yourself into it. Yeah. And yet, as you said, in the, from the shamanic tradition that, we're also part of a network. We're yeah, of they want all of you. You got to be careful. You don't, you know, get seduced by spirit. <clears throat> That's that whole possession and obsession and stupidity, because you know, spirit's not always right. People hate me saying that, but it's not always right. We, this is our world, the middle world, and I'm separating consciously that we. There's a middle world here. That human, humanus, God conscious, humanus. This is the realm of where we exist. And there are other realms. And, you know, just 
know that we we have to do our job. Spirit well, wants you to do a lot of stuff for him, right? But you got to do your job. Well, Shaman came out of me. I don't, I don't necessarily adore spirit because it can be awfully demanding children. Well, it's, I mean, it's interesting that you, that you put it that way. I mean, the, the, uh, an aha moment for me in, in relation to that spirit realm uh, was the realization that imagination is a way to go into that space. But, it's, but as an embodied brain imagining things, if you will. In other words, uh, if you if you think you can leave your body behind, that's where that's where you get into trouble in that in that realm. It seems to me. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. So um, so that so to finish what I was saying a little while uh, ago, um, what what I'm appreciating about this trajectory of your own processes that you're describing is is this. Um, you, you've been throwing yourself into things, and that was not the that was not my understand for for many years at at the beginning of my my own you know spiritual work. It was it was about throwing myself into my teacher's work as I understood it, or so that I could get to the place that you're talking about of being able to start at my own beginning. But I don't think I fully appreciated that there were these other realms that I needed to. Uh, explore that I needed to explore, and yep. um, in, in order to create my own unique synthesis, and yep. I think, and that's one of the things that's really come out of this conversation for me is hearing about how uh, how productive that's been for you. Well, you know, the, in my fourth work now, what I work on right now, I'm dealing a lot with e Egyptian stuff right now. Oh, really? I'm, and I met a man out of uh, down in. Uh, He's a Rosicrucian type, mm -hmm. and um, can't get into all the detail, but it is a tremendous school on of, of, of Egyptian, deep Egyptian stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, the Egyptians were hunted and killed because you know nobody, those priests and priestesses were didn't do well after their ten thousand year of dominance of the planet. <laughs> so the thing is, is I, I ran into some stuff, and one of the things I learned is in death, uh, certain things pass through the gate of death. Uh, memory doesn't do well, but if we, we tend to remember how we died, like I don't like being cut and stuff um, because I have memories of being cut, whether we call reincarnation or fantasy, I don't care, but my body does not want to be chopped into bits anymore. Um, my body doesn't want, to, want, doesn't want to fall down from a great height. Right, and I met a, a woman who doesn't want to drown again, and and you know, and I'm not saying you know I'm not going to pretend that we get reincarnation all that. It's all so simple because it's not. It's, it's not. extremely, extremely beyond the average radio call. Right. But but the thing is, is that um, something they said was that the structures we build past the geometries we build pass through. That was a huge revelation for me. Um, and the idea is, is we spend a great deal of life to build a geometry, a spiritual geometry mm -hmm. in our being, an actual structure to the soul. And that structure exists and passes through 
And, and if you read Gurdjieff, the Kajigar body and all that, but, you know, talk about the structure of it, how, you know, what's the shape of it. And no people are the same, but you can actually have a variety of shapes and geometries that lead to very different types of being. Hmm. And we tend to compare and think everything's the same, we're all one, you know, we're not, even close. And the structure defines how we think, how we feel, the powers we have, our capacity and our capabilities. And by altering that structure, we can increase one capability or one structure. It's very magical. But the Egyptians were really into that sort of thing, but they had a pattern they liked. But when I realized that the pattern was arbitrary, meaning that humans can change that pattern through work, hence different lines and different schools with different shapes and different geometries, it gets very profound. So I only bring that up as the final arc statement that there's a tremendous amount of understanding um, of that geometry of what we build in all our minor decisions every day and everything we do with each other that we're actually building something that will, that will sustain. Well, say, yeah. That is a great place to uh, bring this interesting conversation to a conclusion for now, I hope. Um, we, we look forward to more, but uh, if, if there's any you know, final details in terms of if people want to get in touch with you or anything like that. Uh, do you, you have any? Uh, oh, it's okay. Uh, what do you What do you mean? Like what? Oh, I like I, some people have websites and stuff like that. I don't think I don't have anything. I live in a trailer. I have nothing. Just <laughs> contact you guys if you want to get a hold of me. They right. can get you, and you can get me. Okay. It works really yeah. good. We'll, we'll be the filters. Yes, but we we. Uh, but it's not a filter. I just don't have anything. I'm just yeah. a guy wandering around, as you said. Well, we, we uh, as you said, we, this has been a great conversation, and we appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute honor to spend the uh, time with you. Right, well, well, thank you for joining us on the Mystical Positivist. It's been great. You have been listening to the Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we've been playing a Zoom conversation recorded on July 6, 2019 with Richard Webb. Richard Webb has been driving the development of cutting-edge solutions in global Fortune 500 environments in the high-tech industry for over 20 years. As a young man, Richard entered into an intensive apprenticeship with noted Sufi teacher Rashad Field and ultimately worked with Field and his community for almost 20 years. Having established himself in the world both professionally and with a family, he found himself at a crossroads in the early 2000s that led to his initiation into a shamanic tradition. His work was soon complemented with the initiation into the Tibetan Chud tradition, which weaved in a web of community support into the sometimes wild and elemental work of the shamanic tradition. He brings an earthy and immediate wisdom to our conversation that is both deadly serious, yet leavened with humor and compassion. Next week on The Mystical Positivist, we feature a joint conversation with Sam Webster and Gus DeZeraga to discuss their latest project called Pagan Currents. Sam Webster, Ph.D., Master of Divinity, Mage, hails from the Bay Area and has taught magic publicly since 1984. He graduated from the Star King School for the Ministry at Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley in 1993 and earned his doctorate at the University of Bristol, U.K., studying pagan history under Professor Ronald Hutton. He is an adept of the Golden Dawn, a co-founder of the Chthonic Aurorian Templar Order, and an initiate of Wiccan, Druidic, Buddhist, Hindu, and Masonic traditions. His work has been published in journals such as Green Egg and Gnosis, 
and 2010 saw his first book, Tantric Thelema, establishing the publishing house Concrescent Press. In 2001, he founded the Open Source Order of the Golden Dawn, and in 2013, founded the Pantheon Foundation. Sam serves the pagan community as a priest of Hermes. Gus Zaraga combines a formal academic training with decades of work in Wicca and shamanic healing with a Ph.D. in political theory and extensive teaching and publishing experience in mainstream academia. He is a third-degree elder in Gardnerian Wicca, studied closely with Timothy White, who later founded Shaman's Drum Magazine, and intensively practiced Brazilian Umbanda for six years under Antonio Costa e Silva as well as integrating it into his own healing work afterwards. He has given workshops and talks on pagan spirituality and healing in the United States and Canada, as well as organized international conferences, and taught internationally in social sciences. His Fault Lines, The Sixties, The Culture War, and The Return of the Divine Feminine, received a 2014 Silver Award from the Association of Independent Publishers. Pagans and Christians, The Personal Spiritual Experience, won Best Nonfiction of 2001 from the Coalition of Visionary Resources. Tune in for that show on Saturday, July 13th from 4 to 6 p.m. Pacific Time. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday.